morning we're talking about the issue of women in ministry. What role can uh, women play, can have in ministry? There's a couple of passages I want to use to um, do what is going to be more of a Bible study than, a, than an actual sermon. I, I, this is going to be more of a teaching time than a preaching time, okay? Because this is a topic that you, you just kind of have to iron out a couple of uh, basic things. I also want to say this at the start. This is, uh, I understand, uh, kind of controversial, and I understand where people who disagree with where I'm going to be coming on this issue, I understand where they're coming from. Though at the same time, my conviction is, and that's what I'm going to share with you this morning, and I'll share with you the reasons why I have the conviction that I hold. Um, my conviction is that they're mistaken, and they're mistaken for, um, for reasons of just being uninformed on some points. So that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. Four passages here. The first is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young daughters will prophesy. I want you to note that. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Acts chapter 21. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They were known for being prophets in the early church. Four unmarried daughters. Acts chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. No slave, no free, no nothing. Now, here comes the two big ones. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Paul says this, and I know no woman's going to say amen to this text, but just listen to it. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. I'm looking out here across the auditorium and I am seeing some braided hair. Hmm? Aren't you believers? A woman, now get this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Okay, there you go. Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And man, have I dug myself a hole. <laughs> i got to preach myself out of it. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, Father, Lord, I, I pray that you'd be really working in this teaching time. I pray, Lord God, that this message could be freeing, especially, Lord, to women who are gifted and, and uh, feel called to have a role in the ministry. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would surround everything. Lord, I pray that you'd fix this microphone real fast. 
Lord, and, and, and uh, we come against the enemy who would try in any way to hinder what is said, to hinder the word going forth, and to hinder the way we hear the word. So, Lord God, be in charge here, and be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a, a young woman that um, I, I knew at Bethel several years ago. And she was a, a really exceptionally bright woman, very articulate, um, fairly aggressive and self-assertive, very self-confident, had a lag going on the ball, and she had a people magnetism to her that was just really natural. A people, people just kind of looked to her as a leader. And when in a situation, she would just sort of say, well, this is what I think we should do. And she came to me one time with a real theological question, and the question was this. She felt called to ministry, maybe even pastoral ministry. She felt called to leadership. It seemed to come natural to her. And what she was wondering is, why is the devil tempting her in this way? Because in her church tradition, the understanding was that women could not be leaders or could not have any authority in any capacity over a man. And she believed that. And so she interpreted her call to ministry as a demonic thing, something that God did not want her to be involved in. The main passages that she based it on was 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says, let a woman keep silent in the church, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says a woman should not teach or have authority over a man, but should remain silent. The traditional teaching of the church based on those two passages has been just that. That women, while they can serve in the kitchen, while they can serve coffee, while they can do some things in the church, they cannot have any kind of spiritual position that would put them in any sort of teaching or pastoral role over a man. That is strictly a man's work. Most churches who, uh, the Catholic Church has always traditionally tended to teach this. And many Protestant churches today still teach this. Now I'm going to talk particularly about those two verses, but first I want to raise a couple of issues. I want to raise eight questions from Scripture about that, all right? Now follow me on this. This is, again, this morning I'm doing more of a teaching than a preaching thing. Um, when I preach, I've got to get a concept and I go with it. When I teach, you've got to be more meticulous. So follow me on, on, on these eight questions. Number one. I want you to note that 1 Timothy says that a woman should not teach or have authority over any man. A man in the first century was defined usually as somebody above the age of 13. We know in Jewish circles they would, the, the, uh, a young male would go through his bar mitzvah around the age of 13, and that's when they were considered a full adult. So the passage, if you're going to take it and apply it today, it should rule out not only not having women in top positions, but women doing youth work over any male that would be over 13 years old. It would also, no Paul says, don't teach a man. And if we're going to take this passage and apply it today the way the text reads, we should rule out all professors, all female professors, because they have to teach young men. We should rule out or prohibit any male above the age of 13 reading a book written by a woman because what is writing a book other than teaching through your published works? I mean, if we're going to take the text and apply it today, we should be consistent with it. It would rule out, I would think, 
a woman being on the mission field because the Paul says that the woman shouldn't teach any man doesn't qualify it and it's really interesting but throughout history and this is still the case today even those churches that say that a woman shouldn't have authority over a man are very happy to send them on the mission fields in other words you can teach African men you can teach Chinese men but you can't teach Western men but the text says just men in general and we should be consistent if we're going to apply it now a lot of times these churches will say things like well we take this passage to mean that it, it, it simply says that a woman can't be in a senior pastor position but every other thing she can do two points upon that number one where in the New Testament do you find anything like the uh, the the office of a senior pastor <laughs> uh, it, it's not in there number two the text doesn't say that the text says don't, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over any man and if you're going to take the text and apply it today the way it seems to be written in the first century, then that's what the text should mean. Secondly, that was the first question. Second question. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 35, that a woman should be silent in the church. And if she has any questions, she should ask her husband when she gets home. Therefore, not only should we disallow women to teach and preach and have any kind of authority in the church over men over the age of 13 but they shouldn't be if we're gonna take the text seriously now allowed to ask any questions in church and I don't know any church in the history of the uh, of the Christian church that has done that but you shouldn't be able to ask any questions when I when I open up the altar and say if you have any questions come and talk to me when a woman comes and asks me a question I should say well you should go and ask your husband at home because you know, the Bible says doesn't the Bible say that folks it seems so clear-cut. Why is there an issue about this? Let's pack up and go home. This should be the shortest sermon in the world. Don't ask any questions in church. A third question is this. This is big. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which precede, duh, verses 11 and 12, about women being quiet in the church. Deal with women not wearing jewelry and not having braided hair and not wearing expensive clothing. Most, but not all, most churches understand just on an intuitional basis that that is a culturally relative thing. By that I mean that braids and jewelry and expensive clothing meant something in the first century that obviously was ungodly that Paul didn't want women to look like. In fact, that's the way prostitutes dressed in the first century, so Paul says don't dress like prostitutes. And most people understand that braided hair doesn't make you a prostitute in the 20th century, and so they say, well, that's culturally relative. Okay, the principle applies to us today, but the application of it doesn't apply to us today. But now look at why is it that as soon as we've turned to verse 10, verse 9 is cultural, verse 10 is cultural, verse 11, that's eternal. All of a sudden, this is a timeless truth. Women can't have authority over church. They can wear braids because men like braids, but they can't teach because men don't like it. Okay, I don't know. I don't want to get on that one. Here's another. Here's the fourth question. I'm just raising some questions here to get us thinking about it. And I know, I know, I can even feel it. I know that I'm, I'm, I'm coming against some traditional teaching that people have. And that's okay. I just ask you to have an open mind. Here's, here's, a, here's a fourth question. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that when a woman prays or prophesies in church, she should have her head covered with a veil. The point I want to note about that is this. Prophesying is a really interesting thing for a person who later on gets forbidden to talk in church to do. You see what I'm saying? getting at here? Paul assumes that women can prophesy in church. 
He assumes that women can pray out loud in church. He just wants them to have a veil on their head, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit too. That's a first century thing. The point here is that Paul later on says if they have questions, they should ask their husbands uh, at home because it's not permitted for a woman to speak in the church. But clearly he's, there's something that is limiting his application of that saying because he just told us two chapters earlier that a woman can pray and prophesy in church. Okay, it just I, I, it broadens the perspective a little bit. Here's another one. A fifth question is this. We find that pro women in the New Testament frequently prophesied. 1 Timothy chapter 2, or uh, uh, Acts chapter 21, 8 and 9, we read it. We find that, that Stephen had four uh, daughters who were known to be prophets in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, we find that Peter says that when the Holy Spirit's poured out, young women are going to prophesy. Prophecy, we know, was one of the most authoritative offices in the early church. In fact, they didn't make a real clear distinction between speaking prophetically and preaching. When you're preaching with anointing, you are prophesying. You are speaking forth the Word of God. Now, here's the question. How is it possible for women in the early church to be prophets? In fact, we find more female prophets in the New Testament than we find male prophets. That's really interesting. How is it that they can do that, they can prophesy, even in church, according to Paul, and yet they're never supposed to speak in church, they're not even supposed to ask questions, and they're not supposed to have authority over a man? How do you prophesy without having authority over a man? Okay, I hope this is really getting you confused. Oh, here's another good one. Question number six. Read Romans 16. There's some interesting things about Romans 16 that we need to, to pay attention to. In Romans 16, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he recommends to the church at Rome a certain woman called Phoebe. And Paul says of Phoebe that she is a deaconess. A deaconess uses the female version of the word deacon in the New Testament. Elsewhere in the pastorals, Paul says that a deacon should be a man. He tells Timothy, actually at the church at Ephesus, that deacons should be the husband of one wife. But here, he's referring to a female deacon. Now, that's really interesting. He also says that Phoebe is a fellow laborer in the gospel. And he uses that word fellow laborer three other times in the New Testament to refer to fellow evangelists, people who are in the mission field. So Phoebe apparently is a deacon in the church, which simply means a servant of the church and some kind of leadership position, and she's an evangelist. In Romans 16, verse 3, Paul talks about Priscilla. Is my microphone on? Yeah, it's on, okay. Paul talks about Priscilla. And he mentions how Priscilla is also a female, the wife of a guy named Aquila. Um, and uh, they had weird names back then. And they together had a house church, and they led a congregation in their house. Now, in the early church, the pastor, the shepherd, was simply somebody who headed up a house church. And so here we find Priscilla, a woman, being a pastor, a shepherd, along with her husband, in a house church. We also find, if you read Acts 18, that Priscilla taught Apollos. Apollos was a disciple who was kind of on the way, kind of misinformed. Aquila and Priscilla, uh, in Acts 18, the Bible says, taught Apollos the way of God more perfectly. Very interesting. I thought women were supposed to have authority over men. I thought women were supposed to teach men. You read Acts 18, and here Priscilla is teaching Apollos. What gives here? Something's going on. 
In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, you find this. Paul speaks about a Junius. This is really interesting. Junius. It's a female name. She was in prison with Paul. Paul met her in prison. And uh, she was in prison for the gospel. The only time we find Paul being in prison was when he was preaching to hostile crowds. Which maybe indicates that Junius was in prison because she was preaching the gospel and the people didn't like it and she got thrown into prison. In any case, Paul says this about her in Romans 16, 7, that she is one of the, uh, I, I want to quote it here, she is outstanding among the apostles. Junius, a woman, is outstanding among the apostles. Now the word apostle, you need to know, here does not refer to the, one of the twelve apostles. But the word apostle could just mean one sent by God. That's what the term originally meant. But it is a term of leadership. It's a term of ministry. And Paul clearly is assuming that Junius was involved in ministry of a very high order, was one of the fellow laborers with him, was one of the fellow preachers with him, was a fellow pastor with him, was thrown into prison with him, and he commends her to the church at Rome. Finally, a final question is this. You find even in the Old Testament that women had leadership positions. The Bible doesn't assume that there's something inherently about women that they can't lead and can't lead men. If it was an inherent thing, you'd never see any exception to it, but you find that women, in fact, throughout the Bible, a lot of times lead. Look at Judges chapter 4 and 5. Here we have a woman, a very, very competent woman, who's also a prophet, and she is the head of all of Israel. She was the leader of all of Israel and led uh, Israel into some really great battles or whatever. And the Bible speaks about that as a good thing, as a, as a right thing. All of that needs to put in context what Paul... It raises the question, what is Paul getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 2? We'll get to it in a second. But something's going on here, folks. Another set of questions is this, this. Some common sense questions. Some common sense questions. You got, we, we, we've raised some biblical questions, but let's raise some common sense questions. Does it... This is a little dangerous, but does it make sense? Does it, does it seem obvious to anybody that the female, by nature or something, can't be used of God in various ministries, even that of preaching or of teaching? I was saved under the ministry of a woman preacher. She was preaching one of her first sermons. She got up there. She was a Bible student. She was nervous. She kind of read her sermon. She stammered through it. But God used her, got to my heart, and I ran up to the altar and gave my heart to the Lord. Now, what do you, what do, you do with that? Uh, my salvation isn't valid because she was out of the will of God when she was preaching to me? If she was out of the will of God in preaching to me, how was it that God used her to save me? In fact, women, despite the church's traditional position against it, women have been used to save millions and millions of people and to minister in some very profound ways uh, throughout church history. Do you know that in the last century, there's a tremendous movement, the evangelical movement, the, it, it was the second great revival, the second great awakening it's sometimes called, it swept uh, America. Church attendance went from being about 5% in America to being about 50% by the end of the century. The, alcohol, the, the rate of alcoholism, so far as we can discern, dropped about 75% because of this great awakening. It was primarily fueled by women. 
Most of the organizations, the temperance movement and all of that was set up and, and moved by women. Though men got most of the credit for it, women were the ones who, who founded the thing. Almost all of the missions work in the 19th century, the missionary explosion that, that, that just reached out was headed up by women. And it wasn't at all uncommon to have women pastors and evangelists and preachers going around the country. A really interesting thing is to look back at some of the earliest records, the, the, the ministerial roles of some of the conservative denominations, and find that many of their preachers in the last century were women, and today they don't allow women to be preachers. The Baptist General Conference, for example, and by the way, our, our church is affiliated with the Baptist General Conference, um, they allow women preachers, but I don't know of any, and, and I, I bet they're very, very rare. At the turn of the century, over 20% of all the pastors in the BGC were women. The Church of the Nazarene, so far as I know, doesn't have any women ministers today. Maybe they have some. I might be wrong on that, but I don't know of any. I'm, I'm sure the percentage is very low. They take a generally low view of that. But at the turn of the century, one out of every four of their pastors was women. Now, something happened in between. The fundamentalist movement came, and they fought against the liberals, and somehow, and I don't want to go into how, but believing that women can be used in, in, in pastoral roles was seen as being a liberal thing. That's where it got to be tagged liberal. But it wasn't liberal in the 19th century. It just became liberal in our own century. But even in our own century, there's some, been, some incredible women who have had incredibly anointed ministries that have done a lot of good uh, throughout this century. Most of it's been in the charismatic movement because the charismatic movement just has always... Well, I've got to be careful here, but, but they, I think, were really in touch with the fact that God wanted to use women and they let God use women. And so you have an Amy Simple McPherson, who was the founder of the Four Square Church. God used it in an incredible way in a preaching and evangelistic and healing ministry. And Catherine Kuhlman, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of her tapes, but some incredible stuff. And there's some excessive stuff here and there, but, but an incredible ministry saving a lot of people and a healing ministry that I don't think we've seen elsewhere in this century. If God doesn't use women in those kind of roles, explain to me how that happens. On the other hand, the fact that those things do happen maybe should lead us to question or to ask the question, what is Paul getting at in 1 Timothy 2? And maybe what he's getting at is not what we think he's getting at. All right, I'm just asking the question. One final thing, and this is just kind of embarrassing, but I, I want to get at it, and it's this. Is there any obvious connection between a person's gender and their being able to preach or being able to administrate or being able to do anything like that? What connection does a person's genitals have with their speaking ability? I, I don't get, maybe there is one, but I don't get what it is. I, I'm just trying to be, I don't know how else to get at that, okay? There's something that just doesn't resonate there. Okay, enough questions. You're, you're confused enough. You're, you're begging me for an answer. Please, resolve all this. I'm going into cognitive dissonance. I can't stand it any longer. Have no fear. Here we go. What do you do then with, with, with 2 Timothy chapter 2? What do you do with that? All right, this is teaching time. There are two principles of Bible interpretation that I'm going to lay out very, very simply that I think turn the light on. It's kind of an aha experience and, and really shed light on what's going on here. I hope you agree. <laughs> two principles. Number one, principle number one. When interpreting the Bible, it's very important to distinguish the eternal teaching of the Bible from the cultural application of the Bible, right? Very important to distinguish the... There's no yawning allowed in this church, ma'am. Uh, very important to distinguish... You can't say amen, but you cannot yawn. Uh, 
Uh, very important to distinguish the eternal message from the cultural application. For example, the Bible says, the Bible says in Romans 16 that we should greet each other with a holy kiss. The eternal principle there is that we should be very friendly, warm in our greetings towards one another. And that's an eternal truth. The way that that greeting is expressed in the first century, century is by kissing on the cheek. Men kiss each other on the cheek. Men kiss women. Women kiss men. I mean, it was a, you greet a little. Today, you get slapped with a sexual harassment suit if you do this. We do it differently. A handshake will do, thank you. But, well, maybe you can kiss. I kissed Norm the other day. <laughs> um, because it's in the Bible. <laughs> I don't know if that would stand up in court, though. Okay, do you see the difference there? Sometimes to get to the eternal principle, I mean, you could have churches, I suppose, that would kiss each other, and they're very unfriendly, and they're missing the point. The, the, you've got to make a distinction between what the Bible's teaching and the way it applies it in the first century. Here's another example. Women are supposed to wear veils on their head when they pray or prophesy. Their head's supposed to be covered. Now, there's a principle there that Paul's getting at. Behave and act decently in church. It was very offensive to people in the first century for a woman not to have her head covered when she came to church. Today, that's not a very big deal. People don't get, like, really grossed out when a woman doesn't wear uh, you know, a veil on her head. Now, if she came to church with a real slinky bikini and sang on the worship team, there might be an issue. And that's an application of the, uh, uh, of the principle. The principle is be decent. Come on, use some common sense here. The way that looks in the first century is don't wear a veil. Today, veils aren't an issue. So you go beyond the application to the eternal principle. Another point, I, I, another illustration of it is when Paul says that a woman shouldn't wear jewelry and shouldn't have her hair braided and shouldn't wear expensive clothing. You got to know that in the first century, especially at Ephesus, that was associated oftentimes with at best uh, 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 rich arrogance, a rich person who was just flaunting what they had. More frequently, braided hair in particular was associated with prostitution and in fact was, was, uh, uh, was associated with female prostitution in a pagan temple. So Paul is saying, the principle here is this, Christian women do not dress like prostitutes. Today, wearing a braid doesn't usually suggest that you're a prostitute. But the principle is still there. Whatever, however prostitutes dress today, I don't know, I haven't been on a hennepin for a while, but, but however prostitutes dress, don't dress like that. I don't know what it would look like. One good way. Are you following me so far on this? Are you, are you tracking with me? Shake your head if you're tracking with me. Are you lost? Are you tracking with me? You sure? Okay. A very good way to, to, to decide whether or not something is eternal principle or cultural application, one very good way to decide that is to ask this question. Is it uniformly taught in the Bible, or are there various opinions within the Bible itself on this issue? If it's uniformly taught in the Bible, that probably is a good indication that you're dealing with an eternal principle, an eternal teaching. If, however, the Bible itself has different opinions on the matter, you're probably dealing with something that is culturally relative. For example, I one time, about 15 years ago, decided I got to find out what the Bible says about alcohol. Okay, should Christians drink or not? And it blew me away because I could find some passages that say you shouldn't ever drink. Those are the passages that I knew real well from my teaching. Bill Gothard's favorite passage, I think, is Proverbs 31, where it says, Don't look on the wine when it's red and bubbly. Chablis is okay, but don't look on the, the uh, you know. Okay, I knew that passage, okay? On the other hand, I found numerous passages that say that 
they assume that the alcohol is okay. Psalms 104, verse 15. I got these memorized, you know. Hey, Psalms 104, 15. Something. David says, thank the Lord who gives us wine that makes the heart happy. <laughs> oh, thank the Lord. Okay. Now, what is eternal? What's, what's unchanging in the Bible is this. Don't get drunk. You'll never find a verse that says it's okay to get drunk. From beginning to end, the Bible says, do not get drunk. Do not lose control. Watch it. Be careful because alcohol can do that to you. Sometimes, in some situations, for some ministry to be effective, the Bible says don't drink any wine. The Levites, for example, they didn't drink any wine. The, the Nazarites, those who took a Nazarite vow, they didn't drink any wine. For most people, it was an okay thing. But sometimes, for a particular reason, in a particular culture, like teaching at Bethel, for example, you don't drink wine. But on other, in other situations, it's no big deal. The cultural application, the culturally relative thing is, is, is whether to drink or not. You've got to decide that on your own. What's eternal there is don't get drunk. Now, let's bring this all here. In the Bible, I hope I've shown you that it is not a uniform teaching that women cannot teach or have a leadership or authoritative roles over a man. In fact, there's only one clear verse that says that, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Many other verses suggest otherwise. That itself is a good indication that you're dealing with something that is culturally relative, not part of the eternal teaching of the Bible. The fact that just before that we have verses that are universally regarded as being culturally relative, namely about women wearing braids in their hair, also suggests that in this passage we're dealing with a culturally relative thing. If we look at the culture itself, I think we can understand why Paul said what he said. Okay, now follow me on this. In the first century, women were generally uneducated. Not only were women generally uneducated, women were generally not allowed to ever be educated. Most women didn't go to a day of school in their life. School was required for all males, but it was prohibited for most females. There's exceptions to that with Roman citizens and wealthy families and whatever. But for the most part, women weren't allowed to get any kind of education, which meant that they, 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 they couldn't read, they couldn't write, they couldn't understand a lot of things. They didn't have that available to them. In fact, in this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says, let a woman learn in submission... He's already, by cultural standards, being radical. A first century person would have read, heard that and said, What? Women can learn? We hear it and we say, What? Women can't teach? But in the first century, Paul's already pushing the edges, okay? Let a woman learn, okay? But right now, it's not advisable that they should teach because they don't have the background, the education, etc. That, that, that would require that. A second principle, a second uh, thing about this uh, passage is this. In Ephesus, we know that one of the seven wonders of the world existed in Ephesus. And, Paul, and, and Timothy has a new church plant in Ephesus, and that's who he's writing to here. This seventh wonder of the world was called the Temple to Diana. Diana was the chief goddess in the ancient world. And what permeated Ephesus was a... Religion based on mainly female sensuality. And the leaders of this uh, temple, the leaders of this pagan religion, the religion to Diana, were mostly females. And associated with them was all sorts of heretical teaching, pagan teaching, and even temple prostitution. So it would make sense, if it's already pushing things to let women get, get educated, 
We can understand why Paul might say, but right now we don't want them to teach or have authority over a man. But when you combine that with the fact that in Ephesus, all religious leaders who were female were associated with this pagan temple, you can really understand why Paul would tell a pastor in that environment, don't have a woman teach or have authority over a man. It just is not going to be effective for the gospel. The third thing is this. We know that this church that, that Timothy was a part of was a new church plant. It was new. Paul's trying to get it off the ground. It had only been there for a couple of years. It was shaky. And we also know, if you read First uh, 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 Timothy really carefully, that it was being shaken by women. Women were getting converted and they had a lot of their own ideas and a lot of their own tales and they were spreading it abroad. And Paul has to clamp down on that big time. From my perspective here, here's how I read that. In the light of the whole of what Scripture says about women in ministry, I understand that, that to mean this. That Paul is saying in Ephesus, in the first century, at this particular time, that it is not effective for ministry to have women teaching or having authority over a man. It's just going to screw things up too much right now. The eternal principle there is this. When you start a church plant or a new work of God, you've got to be especially careful about who you have in ministry. And you've got to ask seriously the question, will they be effective in this culture? If I went to a culture where curly-head people were all seen as being murderers, I probably wouldn't be a very effective minister because i got so much against me. You have, that's a stupid example, but, 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 but you get the point there. That's, that, that's the eternal principle. Oh, this, by the way, also answers the question of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul says women should keep silent in the church. Because women were uneducated on the whole in the first century, we know from a rabbinical writings, Jewish writings, that very frequently in synagogues, women would sit on one side and the men would sit on the other side. Very frequently in the middle of a, middle of a rabbi's sermon, the women would, 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 wouldn't would understand what's going on. They can't read the Hebrew, they, or they can read the Hebrew, but when well, they couldn't read the Hebrew, they could understand the Hebrew, but... They'd be, they'd be confused. They just couldn't follow. And so they'd ask, you know, their husband, Harry, over there, Hey, Harry, what's going on here? I mean, what, you know, what's going on? And the rabbis came up with a rule that said, Women should not talk in synagogues. If you got questions, ask your husband at home. Paul is simply repeating that in 1 Corinthians 14. Apparently, the Corinthian women were having trouble understanding what was going on because they didn't have the education. And so they'd ask their husbands at home. The principle here is don't disrupt the service. Okay, whatever happens, don't disrupt the service. The application in the first century is don't ask questions to your husband. In our century, folks, our situation's totally different. Thank God we live in a culture where women are allowed to have as much opportunities to be educated as men are. We live in a culture which does not have the same sort of, and I think, and I'm not trying to be politically correct in saying this, but doesn't have the same sort of arbitrary sexist restrictions put on women that was there in the first century. We live in a culture where women have, at least in principle, they are on the same footing as men are on. They have the same educational opportunities. And therefore, I believe that all the kinds of restrictions that you find in the New Testament simply don't apply today. The eternal principles all apply, but the applications which ruled out women in the first century preaching in Ephesus simply don't pertain to our church today. We don't have female temple prostitutes running around that we have to worry about our women looking like. Just like we don't have prostitutes wearing braided hair and therefore we don't need 
to prohibit women from wearing braided hair. I think it comes down to the same thing. A second principle, and I, I close with this one. The second Bible principle that really helps shed light on this thing is this. You always need to make a very clear distinction between what is the heart of the gospel, what is the ideal of the gospel, and what is the cultural accommodation of the gospel. All right? God, throughout the Bible, gives us his ideal, what he's striving for, what his heart is. But God, being a God of grace, also works with us when we're not able to have the ideal. For example, the Bible clearly portrays God's ideal as being monogamy. God's ideal is that a man and a woman would have one partner throughout their whole life, the same partner throughout the whole life, and that they never get divorced. That's God's ideal. And you find it reiterated time and again throughout the Bible, but you also find this. God knows, God sees, God experiences that in a fallen world, that ideal is not always attainable. Divorce is going to happen in a fallen world. We'll be talking about this in a couple of weeks. And God doesn't just sit up there and say, well, I'm not even going to talk to you divorced people because you are, you blew my ideal. God doesn't do that. He sees divorce going on. And so what he does is he accommodates himself to it. He doesn't condone it, but he works with it. And he says this, if a divorce is going to happen, then, then let's do it the right way. And so what you find in Deuteronomy 23, for example, is this. Divorce was happening, but it was always being abusive to women. Women were being arbitrarily dropped by husbands for no good reason and, and, and were, were being abandoned. So God comes down and he humanizes divorce. If you're going to divorce, then this is the way you should divorce. Not that he likes divorce, he hates divorce, but there's a right way and wrong way to go about doing it if you're going to do it. He accommodates himself to what is real, but he always shoots for the ideal. So also God allows polygamy. In a fallen world, you know what, you're going to have wars. And in wars, it's mainly men that are going to die. And when you got a lot of men dying, you got a lot of husbands dying. When you got a lot of husbands dying, you're going to have a lot of women who have no resource, no recourse. And that's going to really mean that a lot of women are going to be involved in prostitution in the ancient world. So the lesser of two evils is to have polygamy. To have one husband with many wives. It's about survival, folks. And God okays that in the Old Testament. It's not his ideal. And he's always striving towards his ideal. But he says, in the meantime, I, let, let's... Let's make this as godly, as, as sanctified as we can. Another, one more illustration of that is, is this. To read the, the, the epistle of Philemon. Paul meets in prison a runaway slave. known uh, his, his name is Onesiris. This runaway slave has a master who is a Christian. Slavery was all over the place in the ancient world. It, no one, it never occurred to anyone even that there shouldn't be slavery. Paul, now look, now look at it. There's an eternal principle throughout the Bible that God does not like. Does, the people are free, and they need to live free. That's, that's a motif that, that runs throughout all of Scripture. But in a fallen world, slavery is going to happen. And Paul, when he's talking to Onesiphorus, and when he writes this letter to his master named Philemon, he doesn't try to overthrow the whole institution of slavery. You can't do that in the first century. Certainly not one person with a church, this little tiny group that it is. It's not going to overthrow slavery. So what God inspires Paul to do is to Christianize it as much as possible. And he says to Philemon, Philemon, treat your slave like a brother in Christ. And, and, and Onesiphorus, when you work for Philemon, do it as unto the Lord. And he brings, he brings in Christian principles. And he tells Philemon to forgive Onesiphorus for running away, etc., etc. 
I don't believe for a minute that slavery is in any form ever part of God's ideal, but I do know that in cultures where it happens, God will work within those fallen structures in order to bring redemption out of it. And I believe that that is exactly, exactly what is going on with women in the New Testament. Women in the New Testament were regarded as being just this far above slaves. They were usually regarded as being the property of men. They weren't, it wasn't thought that they could think on their own, act on their own, decide on their own, or anything like that. And in that culture, it just isn't going to fit. If, if God was incarnated as a woman, you just would not get this thing off the ground. If, if Jesus would have chose women as his apostles, it just would not have worked. No one would listen to them. A woman in the first in, in Jewish culture in the first century couldn't testify in court. She could see a murder happen, but her testimony wouldn't count because they thought that women were just incurable liars. Now, how are you going to have a woman apostle trying to help change the world when no one even gives her the, the time of day? You have to accommodate to the fallen structures to get the job done. And I believe that that's what's going on in the New Testament. God's heart, God's ideal, I think, is found and expressed in a number of ways. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 that we read earlier, Paul says, this is the heart of God. You know what? In Christ, in Christ, there's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no rich, there's no poor. The heart of the gospel is expressed when God comes out and says, you know what? All of the divisions, all of the walls, all of the little rankings that you guys have, all the things that you use to try to put one person above another, my heart, my ideal is to bust all of that open. And I can't do it all in the first century. It's going to take time. My spirit's got to move. But you've got to know what my heart is. In Acts chapter 2, you find the exact same thing. Paul, or Peter says that the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And you know what's going to happen? Now, now you Jews won't even hear this right now, but your young women are going to prophesy. Your young women are going to prophesy. Oh, you didn't think it was possible. You thought that was just... Ruled out of court from day one. But in the latter days, God's going to make sure it happen, it's, it's going to happen. Because see, God's heart is to have a bride. And the bride would utterly transcend all of the narrow sort of restrictive walls and separations and, 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 and judgments that we make about one another as to who's up here and who's down there and who can do what. But in the kingdom of God, God's heart is to have the one criteria that counts. Are you with me? To have the one thing that matters is whether or not you're gifted in it. The Spirit of God moves through you. He blesses you. He gives you. I said I wasn't going to preach this sermon, and here I am preaching. But the Spirit of God moves in you. And the one thing that matters is this. Do you have a gift for it? Do you have a gift for it? Has God called you to that? And the way to decide that is not by asking, oh, by the way, what gender are you? The way to decide that is by, say, is by looking. Well, it looks to me like you got the gift. Women, here's, here's my conviction. If you've got a gift to preach, then start moving and preaching. And if people notice it, then you've got the gift to preach. Preach. If you've got the gift of administration, then start asking God to open up avenues whereby you can start administrating. And if you've got the gift, people are going to notice it, and you'll be in that role. And in my conviction, the, to have a gift-based ministry, to have a gift-based ministry, a ministry that's based not on education, not on color, not on, not on anything like that, not on gender, to have a gift-based ministry is to me that's based on whether or not you're gifted. Whether or not you're gifted, that's the only question that matters. I really believe that the church, in, in, in canonizing the first century restrictive view of women, has largely crippled itself. Because in many areas we've been working with half of the 
excuse the word, manpower that we uh, should have been having. And I think the church has been hurt by that. I also believe that women have been very hurt by this. But most of the time they're so used to it, they don't even know it. But there's something tremendously invalidating about the first century view of women. And I believe there's something tremendously invalidating about the first century view of women, even when it's proclaimed in the 20th century, especially when it's proclaimed in the 20th century. No, you, by virtue of who you are, cannot be involved in this ministry. But I'm gifted. But I got this. But God's put it on my heart. I got a desire. Too bad. Wrong gender. I challenge anybody who believes that women cannot be in pastoral ministries to sit on our board meeting. We've got some women who are gifted to sit in our staff meeting. God has blessed us with, and this is just a little slice of the pie, but you listen to Janice Rowlings talk about finances. She's on our board, one of our board members. We've got three women on our board, and I tell you, I appreciate them. There's a perspective and a giftedness there that would be really lacking if they were not there. You take... I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone who is as financially astute and as, as responsible as Janice Rowlings is. But I thought handling money, I thought thinking with numbers, I thought that was supposed to be a guy thing. Sorry, she's good at it, and I don't know a guy on the board who is. Thank God that we've got her. Or you take a heart of a Catherine Westby or a Midge Mock, or those sit on, a, on one of our staff meetings sometimes, or just watch, come and watch watch how the staff operates and you see an Annie Purdue for example she's on our staff she's kind of the office manager with her gift of administration her gift of organization her gift to be able to see what slots need to be filled that's a pastoral role there folks that's a ministry role there I guess my, my word here is this women in this church from my perspective anyways I'm okay if people don't quite see this yet uh, hang around no ifs no ands no buts about that and I just thank God for the women that he's given to this church. The women who have been involved in, in the kinds of ministry, our prayer ministry wouldn't be anything without the women there. Uh, so many areas, our visitation ministry would be nothing without women being involved there. And I'll tell you something, if God raises up a woman who's got a, who's got a gift for speaking and proclaiming the word of God, whether it's in the body of Christ at large or in this or in this body, I would have no second thoughts about saying, get up in the pulpit, man, let, 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 let's let God use you. We appreciate you. You're valid. There's, there's no first century restriction in the heart of God, I do not believe, put upon you. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for the way you have called women. I thank you, Lord God, for making us both in your image. And I thank you, Lord God, for calling us both, men and women, into your ministry. And I pray, Lord God, that everything that would hinder any female in this congregation from moving in the area that you've called her to move in, I pray, Lord God, that it would be torn down whether it's a cultural thing, whether it's a traditional thing, whether it's an abuse thing, Lord God, I pray that in Jesus' name right now I'd be torn down and that they would be freed to do the ministry that you've called them to do, Lord God. Call them, use them, Lord God, and be glorified in their life. We pray in your name. We pray in your name. You know what? I just got this radical impression. I want to I close this way. I would really like it if all the women in this uh, congregation would stand up and if all the men would just say thank you by just clapping our hands for them. We appreciate you. Would you stand up? Women, stand up. Women, stand up. Come on, you guys, stand up. We appreciate you. Come on. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. Amen. Praise God, we appreciate you.
We appreciate you. Go forth in the joy of the Lord. The front of the auditorium is open if you have any questions or uh, things you'd like to pray for. God bless you.